0: The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Interra, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. And by Black and Building a World of Difference. This is Session 191.
1: Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibsey.
0: Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is David McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. And a happy Mother's Day to my mom and my wife. Thank you so much for all you do. And happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. We really, all of us really appreciate everything that you've done for us. Well, it's data month here at the Water Values Podcast. Yes, I'm decreeing the month of May as data month here. Uh, To kick things off, we're going to have water entrepreneur and new mom, Mina Sankran on. Mina gives a great, interview discussing all things data and provides some terrific perspectives on driving the digital tra- digital transformation. Uh, she identifies common data gaps. Uh, she talks about cybersecurity. It's a really a wide-ranging interview, and she does a terrific job at it. So get ready for that, that terrific interview with, with Mina. We also have Reese Tisdale coming on with a Bluefield on Tap segment. But first, and as always, a hearty thank you again to our sponsors, the American Waterworks Association can do Woodard & Curran, Intera Xylem, and Black and & Veatch. And I'd love for you if you could do me a favor, please. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please, please, please thank your boss. Thank your contact to that sponsor firm and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Castbox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on? Again, that is greatly appreciated and it helps others find out about the podcast. Well, now it's time for this month's Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield researchers, Reese Tisdale, who is going to discuss the rising materials costs we're seeing out there and what impact that's having on the water sector. Take it away. Well, Reese, welcome back to another Bluefield on Tap. How you doing?
2: Hey, Dave, I'm pretty good. How about yourself?
0: Doing real well, thanks. Doing well. Um, what is on your mind today? What, uh, what what's hitting the water sector?
2: So basically, we've had a couple clients come. Well, a couple of different things, but all at once, uh, we've been working on our capex and opex forecast for clients. But then separately, other clients and companies we talk to. Have been concern, concerned about material prices, construction of material prices, and the impacts on their basically their businesses. Obviously, because what's happened is there seems to be a significant amount of price inflation in recent months. Obviously, over the past year, but bid prices have remained essentially flat. Um, so that's creating the divergence is creating potentially a near term, but also longer term problem.
0: Yeah. So, uh, what, what does your analysis show in terms of, uh, what is, what, 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 are the, what's going to be the impact or what's driving the impact, uh, from increased material prices?
2: Yeah. So obviously there are obvious things. So obviously the quarantining and unemployment, so unemployment in the construction sector among, you know, went down to fourteen fifty percent uh, early in the Q1 and the Q2 of, uh, 2020, so that's played an impact. And but what you can see is, is I think you can read everybody's reading in the papers. The residential market is booming; it's going through the roof. So demand is super high there for lumber, copper, PVC, all those materials. The commercial non-residential sector has not been as robust, but it's still competing uh, across those distribution channels and having to ultimately pay more. I mean, the result has been. You know, what we're seeing is PVC well, I was, I'll save that for later, but basically <laughs> diesel diesel prices are up. You know, they're up from where they were last, they've gone up 114%. What does that impact? It impacts companies like the Core and Mains, the Fergusons, the anybody who's distributing products and materials, they're having to pay more, therefore they're having to charge more. Copper prices are up 37%. But the big one I thought that was interesting, because we talked about the Texas. Freeze out a month or two ago, and that was its impact on the petrochem and/or PVC sector. So PVC prices are up 270, uh, percent partly because of that.
0: Yeah. What uh, in terms of uh, how how this is going to like flow through to utilities and things like that? What what what's your estimate or what what's your guess on that?
2: Well, I mean, is I think we've talked a little bit about there's always a lag in the municipal sector. We're looking at the CIPs now, and it it is a bit of a mixed bag depending on the size of the system, but also, you know, where they're located and how their revenues um, and just funding availability have been impacted. But typically what we've seen historically in recessions, there's about a 12 to 20, really 24 month lag. So even our down. Now, I will say at Bluefield, we're definitely more optimistic than we were. I think we hit the bottom, I think, in September of 2020 is when our research team said, oh, my God, this is not going to be pretty. But, you know, stimulus from last summer that they passed was has, was super helpful, the CARES Act. And, you know, we're still waiting to see ultimately what plays out with the upcoming stimulus um and where that and they've already i think there was just approved by the senate 35 billion dollars allocated to water so there's going to be some dollars there so it it it's not the first time this has happened so this happened before the great recession as as you know there was a huge demand housing was going through the roof and prices jumped almost 13 percent. well that's where we are today For construction materials, so it's it's similar. The question is, the longer it plays out, the the harder or bigger impact it's going to ultimately have uh, on the utilities.
0: Yeah, you you raise a good point. Also, with the stimulus, you know, there's there's the Biden infrastructure bill uh, that you know folks say that it's there. They they think something's going to get done what gets done and we talked about this last time. So, talk to me about inflation or the the increased material prices and um um the the infrastructure bill that's coming out. I mean, we're not going to see the the benefits of the infrastructure bill just get swallowed up by inflation, I'm sure, but what what's your take on that?
2: Well, I think one of the challenges is, you know, it depends on when the bid, you know, if it's, we'll use the term shovel ready, if it's shovel ready now, and they say, hey, we've got dollars, when was that bid set? Because that's really what everybody's going by. So as I mentioned, over the past year, bid prices have only gone up, you know, half a percent, whereas construction as a whole has gone up 13. So there's, that's the real sticking point in in water projects. I mean, you know, it's not like municipalities are fleet of foot. I mean, and maybe that's for obvious reasons. So there, that's the that's the problem. As long as you know, so the other thing that I should mention is tariffs, right? I mean, there, even in eighteen and nineteen, there was a price rise on on certain materials, and that's because of prices, you know, or tariffs, you know, on Canada but also China as well. So it's that that's the hard part, and I think even at Bluefield, we have a tough time matching the two we kind of you know the way we look at it is this is what we think is going to happen but there's going to be some swing up or down partly because of material prices
0: yeah i mean we're, we're heading into some uh, some fascinating waters here in terms of how things how it all shakes out so we as always really appreciate your perspective and insights um so thanks so much for coming on again and we'll uh, we'll catch you next time
2: all right dave take it easy look forward to catching up.
0: all right see you As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale. Thanks so much for coming on, Reese. Now it's time for our featured guest, Mina Sankaran. Let's get that water flowing. Well, Mina, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So great to finally have you on. How are you today?
1: Doing great, David. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm excited to be here and uh, really have a fun conversation over the next few minutes.
0: Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And I really appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, because you are a new mother you have a lot of things going on uh, in your life right now so really appreciate you taking the time out Um,
1: well it's great to uh, great to share that with so many women in water who are kind of spearheading whether it's companies director of utilities uh, the water operators out there Uh, I think this is a shout out for every single one of those moms you're juggling all kinds of things, water at home and water in the city.
0: (laughs) Awesome. So, so Mina, uh, I would love to find out a little about your background and how you came to the water sector.
1: Sure. Absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a journey that's led me up to, up to where we are today. And um, at a very high level, I I would say, I grew up in India um, and quite a modest family in terms of what water access we had. Um, and it's uh, it's amazing how privileged we are in this country with regards to the comforts we have with water. Open a tap, you have hot water. Open another tap, you have cold water. And you, know, you, you take it for granted. Um, and I think that it's a separate broadcast to discuss how water should be priced in this country. But um, it's uh, fundamentally we we had access to maybe an hour of water that would show up in a tanker um, and that you purchased um, and that was made available and it was not necessarily clean drinking water, it was clear water um, and it depended on the facilities if you could afford a filtration system and we were uh, kind of used to the traditional way of boiling water, probably what most of Texas was doing last week. Um, You know, really, just boiled water, and uh, you know, you boiled it three times for drinking and four times for cooking, or vice versa, and it's just sort of strange techniques that you know parents landed up doing. But that was that was the life of water, and I probably had more waterborne illnesses than most people would care to know. But probably about thirteen or fifteen before I was even fifteen, and that was just a norm um, because you were just exposed to so many and. I think subconsciously water was always there in my life Um, and when I look at sort of technology and I'm an engineer by education and I've spent about 17 years of my career in data center infrastructure uh, looking at how do you develop actionable insights out of you know the massive amount of big data that you collect whether you're working in a trading floor whether you're working in an enterprise large tech and Fundamentally, what I realized is that movement just didn't happen into the water sector fast enough or didn't happen even seven, eight years ago in conversation. And it kind of dawned on me that why can't we leverage technology to move the needle for these legacy sectors, but much, much needed and challenging and important sectors, especially for a precious resource like water, and it realized uh, personally for an inflection point, because if you want to be an entrepreneur, you better have a very serious drive because otherwise it's, it's a very challenging journey with a lot of ebbs and flows. So uh, for me personally, that was kind of a culmination of everything and decided to found Quito's where it was an intersection you know, of IoT meets data science meets robotics for the world of water. And how do we really create value for this sector, which is much, much needed and um, long overdue?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I cannot wait to get to the data conversation with you. I, I do have a question. You, uh, There are very few of my guests that have had the experiences you've had growing up in India. And I'm just kind of curious, have you ever sat back and reflected, uh, not that you're old enough to like me to reflect, <laughs> you know, that significantly on it, but um uh, have you sat back and reflected how that, that upbringing has impacted your your life?
1: I, I mean, David, like we could go on for an hour podcast <laughs> about how that upbringing of... I, I, I think it, um, you know, who I am today, I completely attribute it to my parents, to my mom and dad. And I think that value, the principle, all of those were built in as part of that upbringing. And... You know, you never complained about what you got. You made the best of what you got. And um, it's that resilience which translated into a much-needed um, probably ingredient in the recipe to becoming an entrepreneur. So without that resilience, without that attitude of you can make uh, anything possible with the minimal resources you have, I think all contributed to the founding of Keto's. And so – and even one of the other aspects of, you know, in 2013, as I was looking at, well, these are all my ideas, because if you look at the youth today, they have a fantastic set of ideas and they're more uh, upset about climate change and looking at what we're doing for, you know, water and future generations. You realize very quickly that it's it's sort of important to not just build something that's commercially viable, but really bring about an impact. And now the third pillar is you have the commercial viability, you have the social impact side of it. The third is how do you become an evangelist towards that cause and truly bring that entire life cycle together? And that's something I feel privileged to be part of and hopefully continue paying it forward in terms of making sure a business is no longer just about an idea translating into revenue, but it's really about you know bringing that holistic sense of creating a movement.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let's, let's hop into the data side of things. Um, you know, I I've had guests on before that have talked about data and they're, they're always fantastic. And I learn a lot. I am kind of curious about what your thoughts are as we sit here in 2021. Uh, you know, where, where is the utility? Where's, we you know, where are we in the, the, the use and harnessing of data in the water sector?
1: You know, it's a fascinating question because it's so different even within the water sector from segment to segment. The water sector is very, very siloed. Um, And so if you look at within the municipalities, uh, let's just take them as a start. You have different sizes of utilities. And so and that also dictates the types of resources. I mean, within the next 10 years, a majority of the workforce in the utilities are going to retire. Um, and that means how are you pursuing the digital transformation you need over the next decade to happen now, and how does that get implemented today uh, so that you actually have more graduates who are, uh, sort of, you know, in that 20 range of, you know, joining water as their career and taking that up on. How, how Like, there's probably 1% of that happening versus the percentage you see on the other front. So, The reason why I mention all of this relative to data is because utilities have collected a wealth of data over the decades. It's not for lack of, uh, but they're information poor because you don't have the sense of how am I using my own data to enable me and empower me in my day-to-day operations? Can that data give me sites enough for me to drive certain decision changes? those things are not as actionable or as predictive or insightful as you and I would hope for. And a lot of our utilities need a ton of help and support. And so the the approach to really managing that also has to be affordable. You cannot be large engineering firms that go in with a very high price tag for lack of resources that a utility may have to bridge that gap. We have to figure out more affordable options of really creating that interoperability. So, for example, when I say interoperability, you've got utilities, let's say smaller utilities. They've got data that they've collected in PDFs, clipboards that have translated into some spreadsheets. Uh, Some data may have gone into SCADA systems. Some data probably still manually entered and manually recorded. Uh, Some data might have come from a few new handheld probes that got implemented in the last uh, about five or seven years. Some data might be in a single parameter or you know, dual parameter type of online analyzer that you deployed in the last few years. So purchases were done at different times. Uh, technologies were implemented at different time scale, And now you have some that's time series data, some that is static data. And the intelligence of bringing all of that data and together being harnessed in a very integrated and interoperable manner is very, very key that's not present
0: cohesively across all the utilities. Yeah. That, 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 um, data management seems to be like a a real key because, uh, I think you, you put your finger on it. There, there's a lot of data out there, but they don't know what to do with it. And, or, or it's just not organized properly or so. So how, how, how can they go about, how can us in the water sector, how can we be better at managing our data? What are, what are some tricks? Well,
1: the the first thing is, is how much of that data is useful to you so not all data might be useful depending on how you're parsing it right so i think the first uh round of exercise is digitizing everything so just get everything to be digitized into a massive data lake so now you have a common baseline to start the second step would be after you have this digitized data like understand the time series part of it like some what the What's the frequency of testing that you've collected the data? Are some in real time at 60-second interval or some kind of being measured once a month, once a year? Collect that data. Um, and then look at how are you thinking about data that's related to operational efficiency versus data that's looking at resource efficiency versus data that's looking at asset management. So really separating the data uh, more based on the value of what it's supposed to create versus keeping it all in a common uh, sort of store where you're not able to pick and choose the exact benefit it translates to. So that would be your second tier of organization. Um, and then your third is taking that and building a pattern of what additional sensors do I now need that are very targeted and specific to generating net new data that I don't have um, and is identified as a gap. So for example, let's say I'm gonna hone in on water quality monitoring because where you know that's something that Tito specializes in. So if you looked at water quality monitoring, let's say you've parsed through the data, you've analyzed it, you've gone through that tier three, and now you look at you have only pH and sort of temperature and maybe EC. What you don't have is truly understanding iron or understanding the heavy metals that probably help you in the composition of your chemical feed or your chemical treatment. How do you really get to that data? So now you've honed in on what is that gap, and you can actually install the system to generate net new data that you didn't have or didn't exist before in the industry. And then now you've got the gap where you don't have to do a guess estimate, And it's directly reflecting on your chemical savings, your chemical treatment. And by the way, if you know of certain parameters that are impacting, that are affecting the corrosion of your pipes, your maintenance can be better. And that reflects directly on your manufacturing costs and your manufacturing savings. So that's where the real value comes in. And as a plant operator, as a plant manager, you're showing a substantial amount of savings um, and also value-added efficiency of how that data is brought to be more efficient or just more capable in terms of resources.
0: Yeah. What are some of the most common data gaps that you see?
1: Um, you know, the great question, because one of the most ones we do see are people have, um, they've collected data in different sources, very disparate. So that's one thing I've always seen. Um, so there is, there's a need for a system like PI system from OSI Soft or for, you know, Quito's also would integrated for customers and pull all of that in. So it depends which uh, type of sort of collector. So that's I've seen that as a gap in, in a lot of environments. The other gap I've also seen is um, people who have some sort of SCADA system, some utilities and even industrial customers are trying to build their own homegrown platforms Um, that takes a lot of resources and budget, and you may not have that kind of capital to now go and build an entire new in-house platform. And then the third part of it is, well, do you have all of your ingredients for what you need to be compliant? And are you leveraging, you know, are you investing in a whole in-house lab? And is that needed? Or can you enhance your in-house lab to be more faster, cheaper, and efficient by managing certain automated instruments and automated systems that now exist. Um, The other part of also data looking at in from outside in is how has it worked in the transportation sector? How has it worked successfully in the energies? Because these are already present. They are successful in terms of how they've driven uh, grid management and how they've used the data. So if you look at that angle, you realize very quickly the business model also needs to be disruptive for data to be widely addressed in a more succinct manner of uh, pulling assets, pulling um, you know pump controls, and really driving that automated control loop and closed-loop systems within manufacturing plants.
0: Yeah. Uh, what about, um, are, are there things that we're really good at I mean, it may be a lot of stuff that we're good at collecting data on. I mean, are, are there yeah. are there things that, that utilities, uh, you know, I'll just say they, they, they may have a, a, a bunch of little gold nuggets that they don't even realize they have.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think pumps. So, you know, traditionally utilities have laid out piping infrastructure. So you have every utility, big or small, different sizes. You've got lots of pumps. You've got lots of, um, you know, metering towards the water quantitative. What we've really done well is we've collected a lot of quantitative data, um, and we're trying to correlate information based on that. But we seem to have missed a substantial amount of a gap in the qualitative data aspect of it in terms of today. So that's the only gap I see from a sensor layer. Um, from a, I think we've touched enough on the data collection and the data management layer pieces of it, but from a sensor detection layer, I would say quality is where the biggest gaps are. Quantity, I think there's a substantial amount of equipment, installations already done and out there. Um, what I also see additionally as gaps is when you look at the entire stack, it's becoming more predictive. Now that you've collected, say, 10 years of data, how are you building a pattern with digital twins or even just your own simple uh, machine learning models to allow a pattern to emerge and then look at the pattern to say, well, how can I be you know, a, a bit more predictive with my maintenance? And maintenance is a low-hanging fruit to start with. So while people are risk averse there are still a lot of low hanging fruits to take as your initial baby steps and kind of drive them while using the opportunity to research and look at how others examples are happening on larger, maybe say more capitally intensive projects.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting stuff. So um, here's an, here's another question for you. How do you get you know you mentioned for example that you know the majority of utility uh, employees are going to be retiring over you know the next yeah. next few years how do you how do you, how do you get those employees to buy into the data collection is there do you see much resistance out there to that you know those folks that are see themselves maybe being replaced by machines or anything like that i mean how how can utilities get get their workforce to buy in to Use of uh, you know enhanced use of more enhanced data.
1: Yeah, it's uh, no, it's, it's a very important question, and I, I would answer it in a few different ways. Um, one would be you know when you look at one thing that is very very common across the board, David, when I've walked into any utility or talked to any person in the water sector, is how much they care. So. Every single person, whether it's a utility operator or somebody who's out there driving for three hours to grab a sample, they truly care about water and they care about what they're doing, which is why they've spent their entire lives in a single sector and in a single space, which is very um, uncommon in the tech sector or other sectors. You can't speak of the same in other areas. So they all care. And the question is, how do you help them channel that energy and make them realize that what we're trying to accomplish for them is not not about replacing them, but really enhancing where their value can be? So, for example, when you think about, you know, water, you're looking at, okay, I have to deliver safe water to my constituents, but... Is that sustainable water? You're building everything as a very static mode. And one of the conversations I've typically had with folks who are retiring, or if they've even exhibited a bit of resistance, I've typically told them, well, you care about your utility. You want to give safe water to your constituents, but you're retiring in five years. How are you passing all of that knowledge of 40 years or 30 years of extensive amount of experience that you have onto another generation of folks? If we don't implement something like machine learning that can actually take the value of every aspect of what you're implementing within controls, those controls of all behavior will never be understood. They know every aspect of every anomaly that they have seen, not through a machine, but in their mind, in their head, because they've seen it behave. And so if we are able to capture that through a model and be able to input that data into a system... And consistently have them as that water expert. And as technologists, we need to create business models that are not necessarily replacing them, because that's not the process and that's not the outcome. But you're really there to let them be the water expert and us to be the technologists. So, for example, in Ketos' model, we installed this. System, we maintain it. We manage it. So there's no requirement for calibration and cleaning and labor intensive processes that typically operators got pulled into or sitting and trying to get ramped up on net new technologies, which might be too much for a lot of folks because they don't come with an IT background. They're not data analysts. And we can't expect them to become that overnight. So if you let technologists be technologists and we ch- the utilities challenge the technology companies to come up with business models that protect that cause then these guys have nothing to worry about instead, they become the mentors they become the training minds for all these machine learning models that are going to make that utility a sustainable utility even after they retire and that 's the value chain that we have to communicate
0: yeah, I think that's a great great point you know one of the other folks i've talked to uh, also made the point that and I think this it harmonizes, and I think you're saying the same thing in just a different way is this this individual said well you know the the machine learning and the artificial intelligence really just allows humans to focus on the things that humans are really good at and you know yep. essentially elevates the stuff that they're doing um you know to the highest value uh so I, th- I i think you're saying i think that was a great answer um so what about um what we you you've, you've kind of Talked about a number of things about how you know keto's is a solution. Could you just tell me a little about because I've i uh, that's my fault. I haven't uh, asked you what exactly keto's does. You've you've kind of touched on it a little, but could you could you kind of explain what what keto's is?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, not to take away from a lot of what we want to talk about the industry, but at least taking a minute here, um, we deliver a real time water intelligence solution um, so that people can really feel empowered to take actions based on data-driven insights. And as part of that process, we've realized that we cannot give folks a siloed solution. We have to give them a comprehensive offering. Um, So with that intent in mind, the solution is designed as a vertically integrated stack. So you can have the hardware, and you have all of the connectivity from the hardware that's detecting the data and transmitting it into the cloud. Um, All of the communication, the transmission, as well as is fully secured and encrypted. And all of the back-end processing analysis that you need to do for the data is done in the cloud. Um, We have a custom, very robust platform that we've built that basically takes all that data and delivers on your mobile uh, phone or a web browser, depending on what you're using, the information all the way down to like, here's one PPB part per billion level of arsenic, or here's two parts per billion level of chromium six that's detected in your water at this instant in time. Um, one of the most unique things I've always felt is that you have to be in this day and age, have equipment be very autonomous, uh, have them be remote controlled. So these are all bi-directional communication. Uh, A water operator, let's say there's a COVID outbreak and their plant has issues, he does not need to show up. He can be in his house, use his mobile phone, and activate all of the testing that he needs for the different water sources remotely while looking at the data of how his water is performing in terms of iron and chromium and manganese um, and looking at the different trends of what's happening with TDS or dissolved oxygen. Um, or if a selenium is you know having any anomalies based on target contract limits that they have to meet so that power and that you know tool that a utility or an industrial operator can have at their fingertips to me is is what value that we can provide for this industry now once we have that data and customers use that data then we derive a lot of the predictions and the intelligence from there but It all starts from that single data point that didn't exist before and the ability for them to schedule it, manage the frequency of testing, manage the variance of the parameters that they want to test, um, number of users they want to bring on board. For us, it's really about shifting that mindset. I want to shift the mindset and help in that journey for these customers in terms of, look, testing does not have to be cost prohibitive. It does not have to be, you know, frequency of testing is going to rack up dollars because I'm purchasing consumables. If we can truly make it more about data as a service and remove the element of all these siloed purchase and capital intensive projects, then I think we really have something here for these guys to adopt at scale and um, transform how they operate today.
0: Is there a difference between how data is used? Is data uh, better suited to the uh, either a a distribution or a conveyance system or the treatment plan or what do you have do you have thoughts on on the difference between how data is used in those two inside the fence and outside the fence
1: sure um i think today i would say people are you know based on conversations, people are very well equipped when it comes to treatment plans a lot more uh to to the distribution and remote areas, which seems to be the first sort of point of entry that we're seeing a lot of interest in because it's kind of like the immediate gap and there's a big void. So, for example, larger utilities, they tend to have an in-house lab. They already have resources. They've already invested in a whole bunch of equipment. They've got treatment plans that they've already built a process around. They have NPDES permits already in place. They're compliant with a whole a variety of things that they need to get measured on. So there's a system in place. Uh, there's a lot to improve, but there's at least a system in place. You're not starting from scratch. Now, on the contrary, when you start going outside the fence, as you mentioned, when you look at distribution, when you look at how many monitoring stations are there, in different locations, what type of customer complaints have typically come for, say, groundwater monitoring, where's the surface water monitoring, that's where it gets tricky. And I think the areas where utilities could use a lot of help or industrial operators depending on where their surface water, you know, or source water is coming from. I think if you're thinking about bottling plants, um, you know, depending on if they're purchasing the water from city or they're getting the water uh, from groundwater source and then using RO, those are the areas where there's still a
0: lot of gaps in which we can be very valuable. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Uh, One thing I wanted to to just ask you about, especially in light of what happened in Florida recently in Oldsmar, Florida, uh, with with all the kind of cloud based um, technology and and that that data enables, what are you seeing as the cybersecurity risk? I'm not asking you, you know. I, I, I guess what what do you say when clients when your clients ask you about cybersecurity?
1: Sure, I, I mean it's not. Uh, this is not the first time someone's thought about cybersecurity, right? Like this is you've got thousands of banking applications, fintech applications, like the entire world of enterprise uh, applications have moved over to the cloud management sector or actively being managed on the cloud over a decade or even, you know, two decades. Um, But water sector is now experiencing this. So they're, you know, sort of dipping their toes and a bit more risk averse to that. And rightfully so when it comes to drinking water and public health, but I think what needs to be understood is, one, what exactly happened as an issue before we sort of jump into overall cybersecurity? One, let's make sure that, you know, there are not operator human errors of password changes. And and let's have some good, healthy security practices within a utility in terms of IT practices of password control, security in terms of role-based access. Um, who gets to access what and when and how, who has permissions, how those permissions are tied. So those are some of the basics in which you know every utility or industrial customer should be looking at. Uh, the second aspect of it is, you know, how are if you have a variety of instruments that are sending data to your cloud, how is that data transmitted? Uh, you can do some, you can you, know, you can sniff packets and check out how that data is being transmitted. Is it encrypted? Um, Is it, you know, how are the customers being engaged on that data, Um, as well as looking at, you know, once that transmission is done, your next layer is within the cloud, do you have redundancy? Is there a disaster recovery plan that this technology provider is giving you? Are there multiple cloud management sources that you're having? So, for example, AWS is one of the most commonly widely used, that's Amazon Web Services. You also have Microsoft Azure that's very highly used. Do you have backup? And do you have that data dispersed between the two so that there's always layers of resiliency and redundancy between how your data is managed and stored? Uh, so there's there's tiers of resiliency and redundancy that you can build in that architecture. And it's not for the utility to build, it's for the utility to work with a technology company and ask them, where do you have your data hosted? What's your cybersecurity plan? What's your resiliency plan? What's your disaster recovery plan? How are you looking at you know your business resumption plan? How are you looking at any intermittent issues? What happens in scenario Abe and I lose the data? Do you store the data always? Like these are these are the questions that need to get asked, and these are the questions the that, that every operator looking at digital transformation should be very very smart about in terms of helping design their architecture so that they're really future-proofing it and to a certain extent, really building that back up from a primary and a secondary standpoint. Um, And lastly, another point, you know, with respect to the Florida plant as well, how much automation is good and how ready are you for how much of that automation is valid or viable for your own industry or your own plant? Do you want a full closed loop automated control? Or do you want to monitor and yet have a analyst actually look at that monitored data um, and then make that decision of the action itself? Or do you want that action to get automated where monitoring happens, the data feed automatically goes into the control system, and then based on the shift of monitoring, the control is already taking place? So do you want a hybrid model? Do you want a fully controlled model? And how ready are you for either I think all of these discussions and questions need to be asked and discussed and talked about.
0: Mina, you have been tremendous. I have learned a great deal from you, and I thank you for your time, especially given your uh, uh, your status as a new mom. Uh, what, If you had a leave-behind message, what would it be?
1: I would really encourage everyone to to realize that this is what you're undergoing right now as part of this industrial 4.0 revolution. Now people are calling it water, 4.0 Auto um, you know, remember that this is not a, you know, this is these are not new inventions. Don't be afraid. Um, this is innovation that has been deployed and practiced and, and security issues and everything exposed in other sectors that have time and time been solved for as they've come now to the water sector. So challenge the status quo. Um, be curious. Ask more questions as you're designing your architectures. There are solutions out there, technologies out there, and this is the right time to act because it's only going to help you be great at what you do and deliver a much higher value of service to your constituents and ultimately probably generate more revenue for each of you as industrial or utility companies. Uh, to be more profitable and more lucrative, especially post-COVID and in, in this market climate.
0: Awesome. Great perspective there, Mina. Uh, for those who want to find out more about you and more about Ketos, where can they go to get that information?
1: Yep, um, absolutely. Um, you know, reach us at mailinfo, I-N-F-O, at ketos.co. You can also go to our website, uh, www.ketos.co. And personally, I'm the founder and CEO of Kitos. My name is Mina Sankaran. So you can also reach out to me at mina.kitos.co and uh, we'd be happy to answer any questions and uh, provide you more color.
0: Awesome. Mina, you've been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon.
1: Yeah, likewise. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, Thanks for having me here.
0: Great. All right. We'll see you, Mina. Bye. Wasn't Mina terrific? I loved hearing her. Uh, insights on data in the water sector uh really good thoughts i think on on a, a number of topics so uh she was really good i i really liked her her point that look you know this isn't the first time we've done cybersecurity other other sectors have done cybersecurity so we're not having to you know invent the reinvent the wheel um terrific perspectives from mina uh, will check out the show notes for this page, uh, and you can find that by Googling the Water Values Podcast. Click the first thing that comes up. Uh, it'll take you to the landing page over at Bluefield Research, um, and you can check out all the links and all the good stuff uh, on the, about the podcast from Mina's interview on that. Well, let me know what you liked about the podcast. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag #WaterValues and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at Bluefield Research's landing page. Again, just Google the Water Values Podcast, go to the page, it's real simple. Well, thank you again for tuning in, and a huge, huge, huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast include the American Waterworks Association, Can Do, Woodard & Curran, Interra, xylem and black and veatch this show wouldn't be possible without those great companies and industry leaders well before we close things out again happy mother's day to all the moms out there love you mom love you audrey make sure you reach out and tell your mom how much you appreciate her and how much you love her In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
1: the water values podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me.
0: Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.